thank you all. Uh, thank you for coming to listen to me again. Some of you I've seen faces who've been here quite a number of times. It's always good to spend time with Farid when faith gets revived. You know, otherwise it can get dulled a little bit now and then, <laughs> you know, so that you have a common concerns and common theological positions to start with. The issue of terrorism has become a, a better noir for, for all kinds of things. We are just witnessing when the state is actually just disqualified electoral government because they were terrorists. And the state itself is not the terrorist. So that's the context of this discussion that I want to begin. Since the events of 11 September 2001, terrorism has been a particularly prevalent subject of discussion as both a majority policy concern around the world, every major Western country and every major attached country have made a policy concerted effort to deal with the issue of terrorism. As well as it actually has become a key theoretical problem in all kinds of social and human science discourse. I don't know whether post-apartheid South Africa talks as much about terrorism, but if you go back in the history, that was a very critical chapter in South African history about calling the people who were struggling for independence or something as terrorists. Right? So the terrorism is not a new concept, I just want to say that. So this is not to say that terrorism is either a new concern or problem, or that it has not been a widespread dilemma prior to this current manifestation of it over the last 12 years. The activities of the IRA, if you remember the Irish Republican Army, the PLO, and remember Yasser Arafat was the paradigmatic terrorist. And those of you who walk around with those bandana like Ashraf does, you know, that was his symbol of terrorism, right? <laughs> and so PLO, the Basque separatists were there, and I mean, those of you remember that the Basque separatists are still fighting for independence from Spain. Tamil Tigers in, 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 in Sri Lanka. And I can go on with this. As there were the older versions of Baden-Meinhof in Germany, if you know that movement, and also the Red Brigade, etc., that were there in Europe itself, at the core of that European period in the 70s and the 80s. We can even go further back and talk about Masada. Those of you who have done Old Testament, the Great Terrorist Act, which the Roman Empire did not know what to do with, they all committed suicide at the end of the day. Because they, they were not going to be surrendering to an empire. So I bring that up to remind you that there's deep histories of terrorism and have been how they get classified becomes a problem and difficulty. The sheer scale of the destruction that took place on the World Trade Center, because it was done at the heart of the empire, we all know about the tragedy. It, I mean, those of you who come, ever come to my country, you know, that many people die every month in inner sectarian wars, you know, but that's not part of the news item. You know, <laughs> Sunni wars or anything else, they die, about 3,000 people die in, in Pakistan, various, and especially since these terrorists have come over there, and they were not terrorists then, then they were the freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I just want to give you that the scale which is considered to be 
a magnificent scale is there because it took place in the heart of the empire and took place at, at the symbols of power. The trade centers were the symbols of economic power, the, the, the Pentagon, the symbol of military power, and the last one that missed was the Congress itself, which would have been the political power. So it, it, was, it was targeted, it was well designed, and it actually did exactly what it wanted to. It destabilized the way we have understood politics. Uh, after that, nobody takes it for granted. And we, I live there in the heart of the beast, so I know that we are fighting three wars. They only talk about two, which is Afghanistan, Iraq, and then the war against terrorism is a fundamental principle that lies underneath that. And we don't talk about that always. We always talk about the war in Afghanistan and Iraq. We forgot that all of this and other renditions and everything that takes place takes place in the context of war against terror. It's called the extraordinary rendition. If you have not heard about it, people are hijacked, taken away, put behind bars, beaten, tortured in places that nobody knows about. The attack that took place on the American soil, the sole global power after 1989, you know, it was, it, it was all right, it could have happened if Soviet Union had backed the people. But Soviet Union didn't back it. And so the mono power that was there right now was challenged at a very cold level. Uh, such a terrorist attack, America had never suffered any attack on its soil except during the Second World War in Hawaii, in Pearl Harbor. So for America, this was really a jarring experience. Because even during the First World War and Second World War, America gets involved in it, but never experiences war on its own territories. Except this attack from Japan in the Pearl Harbor in the Hawaii Islands. It never experienced that level of what you call ravages of war directly. You know, we could go out and bomb Vietnam and, you know, blow up jungles, we could do anything, but never had experienced ourselves there. So this was a really a mind opener that our power was not as strong as we thought it was. We were not impregnably, you know, certain anymore. Now stated or unstated, all terrorists were assumed by the time as Muslims. Now, please don't tell me it was not the case because I heard everyone talk about it and then they backtracked. But first, all Muslims were tried. I happened to be a, a, a brown man, a black man. My name is Amjad Ali. I have a beard. The amount of time I have been frisked and things that have been done to me, if I enjoyed that sexuality, it would have been wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I've been probed and prodded, my clothes have been taken off, even my credit cards are taken off to see whether I'm carrying a terrorist bomb in it. My son, who was seven years old at the time, was stopped with his mother. And his mother is white. But he was stopped. And Chris blew up, <laughs> sort of, because they asked him to take off his trousers and do this. So I'm, I'm just saying this was actually ad nauseum in every place. All of a sudden, I called up Cornell West, a, a mate of mine from very many years. We were, we all came to teach together at Columbia Union at the time. And I said, you know, I now know what race profiling is. And he says, welcome to the club, my brother. 
because up to now I was never profiled. All of a sudden, anywhere I walked, boom, they stopped me. Driving at night, the cops would stop you. So I, I just give you that, that question, that how it was dealt with. Mo profiling Muslim became a commonplace, a dark-bearded man walking down the street was a potential suicide bomber, a fact tragically proven in the death of, you remember Charles Menzies in England, who was shot 13 times, seven of them in his head, because he was a brown-skinned man, happened to be from Brazil, but no, that didn't matter, because you had done the profiling, and he was walking with a brief, you know, backpacks, and so they shot him, because on 7th of July, England had a bomb, terrorist bomb, in a subway, or underground. So, this kind of thing went on. Of course, Western leaders were quick in, in the post-immediacy of that situation to disassociate an absolute essentializing of all Muslims being terrorists to just saying that it is not Islam that is terrorist and not all Muslims are terrorists, but some were. How they classified that some was never clear to any one of us. You know, how, why is Farid not a terrorist and I was? <laughs> Well, some were terrorists, so he might have been a terrorist. <laughs> and some were not, so Charles was not a terrorist. But that was never the case. The some were not terrorists. We were all profiled equally. I hope you understand this. And I was there at the time, and then continued to live there for whatever reason. But the same leaders, however, are quick to point out that Muslim fundamentalists, and this term was applied in the beginning. You know, fundamentalism was applied in Islam very early. It was an absolutely stupid term to apply because fundamentalism was a self-confessed category of this Christian who produced ten fundamental tracts in 1910 to 1924. They called themselves fundamentalists. And so all of a sudden it was applied in a context which it was used pejoratively for a group of people who did not have the same level of fundamental questions, but they were called fundamentalists. So from a tract or ten tracts that was produced by evangelical Christians on ten fundamentals of Christian faith who called themselves fundamentalists, it was not pejoratively used or anybody we didn't like. So anybody became a fundamentalist who believed in God or anybody who became a fundamentalist who didn't believe in Kantian reason or whatever <laughs> may be the case. Right? So the existing apparent attitude is that while not all Muslims are terrorists, profiling of young Muslim men notwithstanding, all terrorists are indeed Muslims. So, not all Muslims are terrorists, but all terrorists are Muslims. You get it now? I have a son who's now 19 by now, and he's going to university, and he's decided to grow beard. I mean, I feel very proud that he's following his father because I grew up and had this beard since I was 17, and he decided he's going to follow his dad. And boy, he's invariably stopped. His name is Carl, with a K. But <laughs> I just want to give you that, so they always ask, how can he be calm? Because he's, you know, bicolor and a little darker. But that's what to say that any young man is immediately classified as a potential terrorist. So this is just to give you that. In the era prior to 9-11, all discussion of terrorism, whether carried out in political, philosophical, or social-moral grounds or discourse, were approached mostly under two broad and distinct headings. And let me just go through this quick history of how the word terrorism was before September 11th. They were called, one, insurgent or revolutionary terrorism, 
i.e. terrorism carried out by the non-state actors such as guerrilla armies and small group of insurgents with the goal of challenging or changing the contemporary current status quo. So ANC was a terrorist group as a counterinsurgent group. Right? I mean, I hope that was the definition then. Or those of us who were involved against the military dictators were put in jail and beaten because we were terrorists, because we were fighting against the given status quo. In Latin America, you know what happened in Chile or you happened in Argentina or any of the people disappeared. That was the definition of terrorism. Then the second definition was state or repressive terrorism, which is carried out by official organizing political entities. So what is happening in Egypt today is a state repressive terrorism. For the first time we are witnessing that, and they have to then classify, classify the people who have been elected as the insurgent terrorists. So they are trying to place them in terrorist camp rather than asking that they are trying to revive back their democracy. I don't know if you've been following this, what's going on in Egypt right now. When dealing with these two categories of terrorism on moral and ethical grounds, there was a tendency among those involved in the discussion to think in terms of means and criteria. What is the mean? What is the end to be achieved? You know, the point is when the state does repressive, their means were legal because it was a state's power to do so. The same act committed by insurgents was an act of terrorism because they were challenging the status quo. Right? So the means end has become a major problem for all ethical theory. What means can you apply for what ends to achieve? Right? I mean, this is, this is an ethical problem for a lot of us, you know, those of you who drive fast because you have to be in class and time. You are violating the law. <laughs> you know, are you involved in an act of terrorism? Or oh, you say, I have to be in class, therefore I'm not driving faster than the speed limit here. So you say the end is getting that to the class on time. And my means may be illegal, but that's all right, <laughs> you know. So the point is, but that same logic can be applied to the issue of terrorism. What means do they employ for what ends they want to achieve? So uh, that is first whether any means can be utilized to achieve certain ends, any means. Can they be legal or illegal or, or not? And who defines the legality or illegality of that, right? So we say, well, the international regimes, international law, well, you know, the state of Israel can do because it's got the legitimate right to doing so. But anybody else outside cannot do so because they don't have the legitimate right to do so, right? I mean, the point is, does freedom act as a normative ethical value or state power act as a normative ethical value? And that's a question that has come over and over again between the state terrorism and counterinsurgent terrorism. Some scholars have justified any means for the sake of proper end. As long as the ends are right, you can kill Hitler, to use Bonhoeffian argument. Right? As long as you are doing it for the right purpose, you may employ means that may be illegal. Does murder to be condoned when it is done for good ends? I mean, this is a dilemma that Bonhoeffer faced, and as a Lutheran, he was really worried about it because it was a means and thing where you can justify any means in, in the justified justification by faith, you know, whether, whether that was allowed. So you commit sin and sin boldly a little bit because you're trying to get certain ends achieved, right? So the, those debates have been part of our ethical categories as we were dealing with the issue of terrorism. This has been the major discussion, and I'm going to quote to you a number of political theorists and political scientists. In both instances, there is a clear tendency 
to tear means and then while they're talking about means and but they're tearing them apart to make moral judgment on each of them independent of other. So I can't, I say, well, you can't kill even though you have a good end, or I can kill because you have a good end. Right? I mean, in both cases, the mean end is being split. You can't murder for the sake of achieving peace because the end must be the same as the, or you can kill because you have to achieve peace. So they were being torn apart, and those of you who do ethical theories know that this has been a debate in all four or five ethical theories, whether you take a deontological principle, teleological principle, situation ethics, you know, character virtue ethics, or utilitarianism. Those are the criteria that get taught. However, as Aristotle correctly perceived in a philosophical and ethical discourse, this is best distorted methodology, and at worst, it is simply unethical. For any judgment that one makes on any action, in this case terrorism, is simultaneously a judgment on both means and ends. What ends are there which are leading to certain means, what means is applied to achieve certain ends. You cannot separate them and then make value judgment on either. This is Aristotle's position, I hold on to this. Together they constitute the whole of the action which demand the ethical reflection in the first place. Whether dealing with the problem of terrorism, on moral grounds, scholars tend to approach these two types of terrorism from two different, though not mutually exclusive criteria. In the case of insurgent revolutionary terrorism, they appeal to the international law, that there's an international law which cannot be violated. You can't kill civilians. We can kill civilians as collateral damage, but you can't kill civilians because that's against the international law. There's always this collateral damage now. I mean, you know, as if to say you're depositing in banks something to get a loan. <laughs> you know, that's what a collateral means. I'm putting a collateral, therefore you can give me this loan. Now you're putting collateral of lives of people because you're trying to achieve an end. The war is will have a collateral damage. There is no notion, this is my argument against just war theory, those of you who still practice it, that there is actually no war in which there is not going to be collateral damage. And since there is no war which will not have collateral damage, there is no ground left for the just war theory anymore. Because it, it is a tit for tat understanding. And this is going to be more than tit than the tat here, you know. So it doesn't work. So this is the question. But in the case of state repressive terrorism, they look more to the philosophical and moral issue because there were no codes available what the state could or could not do. Still there are not, by the way. Can America do a preemptive strike in Afghanistan because Afghanistan was the place out of which these people came? On what ground do you do it? So now you have a preemptive just war theory. It's the new, just came out. Obama actually articulated it about three weeks ago. For the first time, there's actually a preempt, and Israel has been doing that forever and ever, that we are preemptively striking Baghdad nuclear because that could be converted into a nuclear bomb. So it was a justified war preemptively, even though there was no attack involved in it. Normally, the just war is you only act in a defensive way because somebody has attacked you. But a preemptive war violates the fundamental principle of the just war theory. Right? I mean, this, uh, please, if those of you have been following just war, and this war was defined in the just war theory. As a matter of fact, whenever America goes to war, the just war theory comes out of the, the shelves, dusted and brought and fed back to you. And they quote this whole thing from Cicero to Justin Martin, then to Luther, because Luther could do that for the vocational purposes. Right? So you get all these, these three or four basic 
they get thrown out at you, you know, the ad bylo, in bylo, all those arguments are thrown at you. And you get them hearing ad nauseum too. <laughs> but the conflict has to be dealt with both the inter and intranational level. So the problem is, if you go into war, you're not only dealing with the moral discourse inside a country, you're also dealing with the moral discourse which happens around the world. Is America right? Is Britain right to join America? The French resisted, and all of a sudden we changed the name French fries to Freedom Fries. We changed the language. So all of a sudden in, in the Congress, there was no language any French fries available. All we had was Freedom Fries. I hope you know this. I, I'm not joking, by the way. If you haven't, go back and look at it. So for three years, there was no French fries available in Congress dining room. They were all Freedom Fries because they were not fried up at all. You remember that, right? You were there at <laughs> that time. I mean, I just laughed. You know, what do you do by creating new euphemisms? <laughs> no, so we call it chips, so that's all right, right? <laughs> but I'm just saying that how they were willing to change the very grammar of discourse because of this. Despite the tendency to see these two categories of terrorism as being phenomenologically different, counterinsurgency by the people, state terrorism, by the state, right? So they're completely different ontologically and phenomenologically. There was a desire to achieve a common objective, overreaching definition of a larger phenomenon of terrorism. Uh, the argument was that while the act of terrorism had a plurality of definition and meaning, because of the different motives and perpetrators, so you keep blowing bridges, is that an act of terrorism? Do you blow civilians? Is that an act of terrorism? How do you define an act of terrorism? Right? I mean, any bombing, that, those of you who have ever watched any Second World War movie, everything was bombed. You bombed bridges not because you were being terrorist, but you bombed bridges so the troop movement could be banned. Now, act of terrorism should have been in both places. Both entailed the same act, but one was interpreted differently than the other. One was seen as a strategic war in which the bridge had to be destroyed, road had to be destroyed, that the tanks would not move on it. And the other was seen as an act of terrorism because it was attacking civilian places, which are not involved in war. I, I, I hope you follow this. This is a counterpoint that it, whether you judge the act of terrorism on the basis of the actors or on the act committed, how do you classify terrorism? Now, you, you're all educated people doing education. I mean, what actually makes an act of terrorism terrorism? You know, and, and if it's just an act, Blowing building where civilians are, collateral damage, if the state does it. If I do it, <laughs> I'm, an, I'm doing an act of terrorism. How do you make that distinction is, is a problem which morally has plagued us for a very long time, by the way. Is the person a terrorist or an act a terrorist? And if the act is terrorist, is the counter act committed by the state not an act of terrorist, then the agency becomes important. And if the agency becomes important, then the question is, would you not always classify people seeking freedom to be always involved in an act of terrorism? You know, I mean, how do you define that, right? And so I'm just giving you that these are problems that lie at the core. While these two approaches to understanding terrorism, i.e. from the perspective of the status quo, and from that of those wishing to change the status quo, have conspicuously diverse interpretation of the moral status of the terrorist. If the state does it, it's not an act of terrorism, the same act. I mean, if Egypt's regime does it, it's not an act of terrorism. 
that we have found six rifles, that is an act of terrorism. That we have tanks going after people, that's not an act of terrorism. On what ground do you make those judgments? You, you get it? I mean, that's, that's where the problem lies. Because for the, the Morsi crowd, I'm not taking their side, please understand this. I am asking a classical ethical theory question. On what ground do we make those judgments? Do we just make it emotionally or there is something involved? And if it is emotional, then I think we have to be much more honest. We just simply say we don't like Afghani Muslimi. You can't just say that because they are terrorists, we are going to ban them. You say it outright. You know, lay your prejudice outside and just say, we don't like these guys. And we like the state. Why do we like the army? We have just got rid of it. Today, this guy, Hosni Mubarak, is out of jail. I hope, I don't know if you've been following it. He's been released from the jail because there's no longer a case against him. I don't know if you followed this. This afternoon. So, I mean, what, what, what is happening in this debate? And so what I'm asking all of you is to work with me on how do we classify these acts of terrorism as terrorism? On how do we classify somebody as a terrorist? And there's shifting meaning and shifting changes, and I'm going to talk more about this in a minute. The divergence of interpretation on this emerges because of the different location of the interpreter. So it's not just the act, it's not just the person, it is who does the interpretation of it. So there are three parties involved in defining terrorism. The act, the actor, and the interpreter. So I define what Morsi Cloud does as a terrorist act, what the state does and kills over 1,200 people, not act of terrorism. You get it? So there's actually a third party of the location of the interpreter. We used to call it ideology in the old days. But Mannheim took that away from us because everybody's ideological. <laughs> so show me an ideologically free person and I'll talk to you about divinity. <laughs> because only God can be free of ideology. Right? So that the question is what ideology are you promoting at this point? Is it a status quo ideology of maintaining order or is it ideology of freedom which says the order is costing somebody some serious damage? So what criteria do we pick up? as ideological interpreters of this issue. So now, if you want to take appeal to efficiency or peace, you know, the old argument is slavery had a lot of peace, but had no justice, and the peace was always shatterable. I said, was always shatterable. Shatterable. Yeah, if I'm creating a word. It's <laughs> not a word in English, but, but it's always going to be shattered. So there is no peace without justice. Feminists have argued that yes, the husband and wife did not always fight in the old days, now they fight, but we could keep women in their place, you know? They need to be put into their rightful place. Anyway, that was peace. You know, the utter nonsense of maintaining peace at the cost of justice. Shalom, if I can use, salam, if I can use, irony, if I can use, I can go with all those words, assume an act of justice built into it. It is not peace at the cost of justice, of freedom, of all those nice good words that ethics uses. Peace, when it is done at the cost of these, is inviting an act of terrorism. Whether it happens directly or it happens women decided at a time not to cook. 
and all of us would be in that deep trouble, right? I mean, I love cooking, so that, that's all right. I mean, my, my wife, who's an Italian, is not a very good cook, and I am not, and I am, but that's besides. Chris always says, you just found your right vocation. But think of it. We said, oh, you know, you know, I am nice to my wife because she will do these, these, these things to me. I'm not nice because I must be nice as a human being to another human being, you know? So I'm just using... All these, that how do we define these things? I'm not being flatly feminist here, I am, but that's besides the point. <laughs> the differing interpretations are a product of the combination produced by the interplay of these two factors, especially by which of them one begins the discourse. So we do we begin the discourse of defining terrorism because of the act, <clears throat> the actor, or the interpreter. The interpreter never plays a role. And what's happening today? is terrorism is being defined exclusively by the terms of the actor, not the act. And that is Islam and Muslims. And that is a change of meaning. So it's not the Mujahideen, the same Mujahideen whom we call freedom fighter, fighters. <laughs> so there was a That's slip. Fine. So that was a real slip. <laughs> Talk about Freudian moments in my life. <laughs> but, you know, but, but allies. Charles, <laughs> I just found a wonderful new description for myself. Yes. But, <laughs> but remember, the West gave them all the money. The three parties which slept to produce those guys were Pakistan, United States, and I use Pakistan first so that I know that I'm culpable in this, and America, and Saudi Arabia. All put together, put these people in there. And today, the very people who did that are terrorists. Then they were attacking communists. Now they're attacking the United States. So what gets defined? The act, the person, or the one interpreting it? And that's the dilemma we are facing. The statement always in the classical ethical theory, you know, the old argument that deontology is the only way of doing ethics, thou shalt not kill, is the principle you must live with. Okay, I live with that. But then they say in war you can kill. So now there's a violation of deontology. <laughs> One violation. Second, well, you know, if you commit a murder, we should, the state should kill the murderer. That's a second violation of the principle of deontology because the situation is defining how we are going to do that, right? So the situation becomes determiner of how we define deontology. We apply deontologies on others while we justify ourselves situationally. You shall not kill. But I kill because there are other reasons behind my killing. You get it? I tell you not to drive fast. But you say, but Charles, you always, well, I have a reason because I've got to get to office in time. Well, get 10 minutes early in the morning. Right? And I'm giving you the, those most banal ethics question, right? The most banal driving fast. But we justify our violation of deontology by either giving a teleological argument that I'm doing it for the right cause or giving a situational ethic that in this situation I can do no other. But if you justify yourself that in this situation I could do no other, you're still a terrorist. If you, you, you follow that logic for a moment, then I can move very quickly on. Behind this factor also lies a very pervasive and dare I say false understanding of time itself. That is perception of understanding of time, temporality, 
notions of past, present, and future because that keeps coming back to us. We keep treating past as something in the end. Somewhere way back it happened. You know, those of you who have ever had a genuine encounter in Christian-Muslim relations know that past continues to haunt everything we do in the present. You know, crusade happened just around the corner. Right? I, I, please understand, all of us have this. This is not just the, the problem. Those of you who can read A, B, C, D are every day acting out your past. Somebody taught you A for apple, B for bad, C for cat. Right? Every time you like, you're reenacting the old sacramental language, anamnesis, enacting out now that which happened. But the past is always with us. And those who say past is something gone by and finished have no actual <coughs> conception of time itself. And that we are always lured and seduced by a future. Those of you who applied to come to this university have already decided to get your MAs. That's why you applied. You applied because you can fill out the form. You have a past that allowed you to fill form, and you have a future which makes you work in all your classes throughout the year. The present is the most dubious temporality. All this existential nonsense that I have lived with all my life with Heidegger, I worked for my dissertation, doesn't work. It works only I can read and write because I have a past. Those of you know what's happening in Alzheimer is that people have lost their past. They don't know how to go to the toilet anymore. Right? We all go to the toilet. I'm sorry, I'm using the most banal terms, right? I know I can do this because there is a past. Somebody taught me, potty trained me to do so. <laughs> Those of you who are parents know what I'm talking about, right? But sit, no, sit. <laughs> because somebody taught it in, I can do it now, but take that memory away from me. I don't even know where to go. So the present is just enacting out that past and living out of the future. I have to go. Therefore, I start going. Those of you who will get in your car, have a past that you know how to drive, and you have a future that you have to go somewhere. The present is only a filler in the middle. And my point is, this temporality plays in our understanding of terrorism. Is it a present event, or is it a past which is being memorialized and revived and relived, and a future that needs to be brought in? And the problem is, we reduce everything to a very... And America has very short memory. They have long memory for certain things, but normally Americans, you know, if you tell them what happened in 1776, they might have read it 200 times, but they will not remember it. And it's true, actually. I live there. I deal with my students at, you know, coming out of some of the brightest universities, and they don't know because it doesn't really matter. So I'm just saying that this temporality, the way it functions in the issue of terrorism is very critical. And we don't, and those of you who, who do either theology, ethics, or philosophy know that this question of time and space and time and being is very closely tied to each other. If your understanding is time is bad, your understanding of being put gets into question. You know, what is your understanding? If I'm only living for now, then I don't have to worry about any moral thing. If I live only exclusively for now, I don't have to be moral to anybody else because I don't worry about my relationship with anybody. So this question of time, and let me move. The further problem we face in making moral judgments on any act in this instance of uh, the act of terrorism is a ten tendency to concentrate only on the act independent of its protagonist and the location of the interpretation, as I've said earlier. 
this judgment actually stops us from making judgment right on any event. You know, why is this act being committed? You know, what happened on September 11? All of you know it. Tell me what happened. I mean, we saw that over and over, and I mean, those of us who are living in America, it was to the point of nausea. And I, I, I was against it. I don't believe in the act of terrorism. I'm not just justifying or supporting it. But I'm saying what actually happened. Is it a war justifiable now for 13 years? We've got a war, which is going on for 12 years, 13 years, depending on who dates it. The longest war that America has been involved in outside of the Cold War. And remember, the Cold War was never cold for those who were the victims. It was hot wars for us in Pakistan. It was hot wars in Vietnam. It was hot wars in Korea. It was hot war everywhere else. It was hot war. The only cold part was that Moscow and Washington did not fight with each other. Therefore, it's called Cold War. Who defines this? It was not Cold War. Ask the victims. They, they were experiencing really heat of the war and dislocation. So when we talk about these, these categories, we have to actually analyze who is saying these things to us. Right? I mean, you were in Pakistan at the time, right? During the Afghan crisis that was there. Right? Remember? Why were you fighting with Afghanistan? What, what did we do with them? So if Soviet Union took over Afghanistan, why did Pakistan have to be involved? And we are now still involved up since 1989 in that war. It were hot wars. But somebody made a definition and all of us use the hot war. I was telling you where was the First World War and Second World War. You know, these were war, you know, these tribal wars became world wars because it was not wars, but we have all accepted it. And so we become part of the interpreter of how we interpret terrorism. And for me, that causes a serious problem. So let me just move here. In all the discussion and definition of terrorism above, religion was not seen being overtly involved in either of these two categories. Please remember all these arguments that religion produces war is a past reading. In the present reading, all these wars were created by secularity and enlightenment. You know, so Soviet Union was promoting religion. That's why we had a Cold War, right? <laughs> well, what religion was Soviet Union producing? Right? The, all, everybody just assumes and takes for granted that religion produces violence and war. It's just not true. Historically not true, is what I'm trying to say. But we have taken for granted this to be the case. So Islam is always a warring religion. It never had peace. Right? I mean, this is, this is because we have then we can plug that all religions. So the secularity is the answer to all of this. And my point is, if anybody has to be blamed over the last hundred years for warring, it has to be secularity and enlightenment. The Korean War was not fought on religion. The Vietnam War was not fought on religion. <laughs> I can go down the list on these. And yet we assume because of September 11, the war is on religion. Right? So that religion had not played part before September 11 in reinterpreting this terrorist event, all of a sudden religion began to play a role. And now all this, this, and we have not, as people who do religion, I, I gather almost every one of you has some links with religious communities of some kind. I mean, not necessarily practicing one or not, but some kind, right? It had not in the old days dealt with the issue of religion. And I'm going to, uh, thank
So I'll just quickly skim through this part there. Thus, the two categories discuss, uh, discuss about, namely uh, insurgent and revolutionary tech, was reconfigured and to apply exclusively to Muslim terrorists. And second, the state represent, uh, repressive terrorism was also applied to the Muslim state. For the first time, both the act of terrorism were applied on Muslims. So the terrorists were Muslims, and Iraq and Afghanistan were terrorist states. So both the repressive terrorism of the state and the act of terrorism was laid out at the Al-Qaeda or whatever it was. For the first time, state and thing were defined un under one banner. So America could go to war in Iraq and Afghanistan on the ground because these are terrorist states, but it could continue to fight a war against terrorism because terrorism were under every push. So all of a sudden, the category shifted where communists were ev under every bed. Now. Muslim terrorists were under every kind. And that, I think, is the change that has occurred, which has substantially challenged the new meaning of terrorism. So we are still, we found in Iraq, no weapons of mass destruction. So now then we have to classify it as a terrorist state. You know, poor Anwar al-Sadat didn't even know that you take your gun off when you pray. Right when you pray, have you seen his pictures? He's always carrying his gun on his side and he's praying. He's, in his sunshine, you can see that he's got his gun coming out. This poor guy was now the terrorist, Muslim fundamentalist attacker. But this, these were problematic understanding that were created. So I'm saying that for the first time, that act happened. While the discussion and definition of terrorism I revived, reviewed above made important contribution to the overall discourse of various issues surrounding the problem of terrorism, Within the scholarship, there are an unfortunate tendency to gloss over the moral question involved in the problem. And I'm going to give you four or five definitions and then finish. There are three dimensions that need to be employed when we... There's an intellectual dimension and a suspicious dimension of intellect. You should actually not just apply intellectual dimension without being suspicious of who has given us that material in the first place. Always be suspicious when the idea comes from the sources of power. Begin. I'm, I'm a Nietzschean or a Marxist, whichever one you want to call. I begin with the assumption of suspicion as a necessary requirement for knowledge. If you're not suspicious enough, you're not intellectual enough to me. But that's my bias, and I say that to you, you can fight with me afterwards. So this intellectual dimension must hold into it a suspicious dimension. You should say, who told you this? Why did a person whose interest was being served, all those series of arguments that has to be done, the old argument that, you know, they were masters of suspicion, Nietzsche, Freud, and Marx. They hated systems, and they hated interpretation of those systems. Right? So that's the first level of intellect I want you to bring. And the second thing is the socio-economic and social-moral dimension. Whose economic interest is being served, and who's claiming the morality? Who is claiming that they are the moral discourse partners? And the political-philosophical dimension is saying what ideology and what political interests are being served. And I'm going to give this, by intellectual dimension, I mean a scholarly attempt to deal with those issues which pose a fundamental challenge for our understanding, especially when it is confronted, as it is today, with what appears to be a bewildering plethora of definition and explanations about the nature, character, and the problems surrounding terrorism.
and since it had been raised and leveled at Islamic door, any question of Christian-Muslim relations gets immediately, I mean, any time I go and talk to the Christians and say that we must be involved in dialogue, the first thing they say, but the Muslims are terrorists. Mm -hmm. How can you talk to them? This, I'm not kidding. I have, since September 11, talked to something like 2,000 or churches every Sunday, two or three times to talk. You know, first of all, America loves to have five minutes or less. They want cliff notes on Islam. <laughs> you know, what can you say, a five pillar, da 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 da, da. And so that you don't explain anything about Islam. But the second thing mm. is immediately the question on, you know, what kind of relationship we are going to have if we are going to have a peaceful, just and sustainable world on Christian Muslims. There is no way Islam is going to go away, I tell And there is no way that it will be easily curbed. I mean, sorry, I said this. Islam is not a, 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 a passive religion in that sense of the term. But neither is Christianity. Please look at all the wars. And so the question is, how are we going to deal with each other is critically important. And if all you define Muslims is as terrorists, there's no way any relationship can develop. To me, and as a Christian I say this now, if you say you love God whom you have not seen and you don't love your neighbor whom you see, you are a liar. I'm quoting you text. You are a liar. And there is a second manuscript which says you are a hypocrite and a liar. Right? <laughs> so that's one side of the argument. And the other thing is the commandment for a Christian is love your God with all your heart, with all your... Now notice that it's not just the mind here, by the way, but the mind is also there with all your soul, with all your strength, all those series of human activity. And love your neighbor as yourself. If you do this, this is the whole of the law. And what we do is we are willing to die for Christianity, but not live a Christian life, which is to love your neighbor. To me, if we don't do this, I don't think we are fulfilling our Christian vocation. And I say this to you now as a Christian, you can challenge and fight with me on this. But I think this is true, the question of Aman, the question of Insar. And so this is where I want to end, that if the definition of terrorism will have to depend on whether you want peace or you want to have continuing hostility as a built-in process of living out in this world which is common to all of us. I'm sorry, I've cut out. Those who are interested, I can give you actually a copy of this paper. I have about four or five extra copies. Then you can read some of the side notes and the footnotes and everything else.